0: Only from Rustolium.
1: The way America thinks about globalization has changed a lot in the last 15 years. Not only is it impossible to turn back the tide of globalization, but efforts to do so can
0: actually make us worse off.
1: After decades of pro-trade policies, a promise to put America first helped Donald Trump win the 2016 election.
2: Our politicians have aggressively pursued a policy of globalization, moving our jobs, our wealth and our factories to Mexico and overseas. Globalization has made the financial elite who donate to politicians very, very wealthy.
1: President Joe Biden has maintained some of this more skeptical approach to openness in international commerce. He's advocated for a different approach to trade from the system America built over the second half of the 20th century.
3: We will pursue new rules of global trade and economic growth to strive to level the playing field so that's it's not artificially tipped in favor of any one country at the expense of others. And every nation has the right An opportunity to compete fairly.
1: The president's headline policies have been attacked by America's allies and adversaries alike for continuing Trump's policy of putting America first, possibly in breach of World Trade Organization rules.
3: The issue being the Inflation Reduction Act, a signature piece of legislation and the concern being for European nations, that it had a lot of uh, protectionism buried within it that really gave American companies some unfair advantages.
1: This turn towards protectionism is top of the agenda at the World Economic Forum in Davos this week, as the conference's founder, Klaus Schwab, explained.
0: The theme of our meeting in Davos is cooperation in a fragmented world. One of the root causes of this fragmentation is actually a lack of cooperation. This in turn increases fragmentation in society and leads even more to short-term and
2: self-serving policymaking. It's a truly vicious circle.
1: You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Washington, D.C.,
2: I'm Alice Fullwood.
1: And in today's show, we assess America's turn inward and ask whether it marks the end of globalisation
4: as we know it.
2: First, We'll explore when the US started to turn its back
4: on openness. You can really trace it back to the global financial crisis in America, beginning to fall out of love with the globalisation order that prevailed.
1: Then we'll ask how the trend towards protectionism is changing the global order.
0: But now I think they're being forced to confront a little bit of the uncomfortable nature of it's not just all about economics anymore.
2: And finally, We'll hear how these policies are viewed from the other side of the Pacific.
0: The U.S. is trying to out China,
3: China by becoming more like China. Alice, hello.
2: Hi, Mike. Have we uh, fired Tom already?
1: Uh yeah yeah he's gone uh no no he's away this week um I believe he's doing something lovely not work related and he's promised he'll be back here next Thursday so I am confident he'll return he hasn't run away
2: that's a relief it would just be the two of us what have you been working on this week
1: I have been writing and thinking pretty incessantly about the Bank of Japan which was keeping us on our toes until yesterday. Um, Unusually active central bank after several years of doing nothing. Well, not nothing, but relative to other central banks, very close to nothing. Yesterday, they also did nothing. But there's been a huge amount of speculation about whether they'll end their yield curve control policy. Basically, the Bank of Japan pinning Japanese government bond yields in their desired levels and the, the shape of the yield curve. For several years now, it's a big question as to how they're going to break away from this policy after a long time. It's nice to have a bit of activity going on after a long while of not very much.
2: Yes, after all those sort of fireworks from other central banks last year, it's finally sort of Japan's turn in the spotlight. But last week, you were writing about something else, the sort of global response to the race to subsidize green technology, which is one of the subjects of this week's show.
1: Indeed, yeah. America passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which promises nearly $400 billion to boost clean energy and reduce dependence on China for things like batteries in electric cars. But it's also passed the CHIPS Act, which provides $52 billion more worth of incentives to boost America's semiconductor industry.
2: And we think this fits into the sort of bigger trend away from globalisation, right? You know, the one that's been building since probably around 2016.
1: We do, yeah. It's something we've been calling the zero sum world. This is fueled partly by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has caused America and other countries to rethink their reliance on less than friendly allies for important industrial supplies, but especially for energy. Some politicians have been using the opportunity here to try and steer towards a green transition as well. They want to be less dependent on rival powers for energy and other things, while at the same time giving a boost to their own domestic industries. But obviously, if everyone does this, it can come with pretty significant costs. And one person who can help shed some light on all of this is Simon Rabinovich, our US economics editor. Hey, Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. So how did we get to this stage where the Democrats in the US are pushing legislation like the CHIPS Act and the Inflation
4: Reduction Act or IRA? How did we get here? Well, I guess the first point is that although a Democrat is in the White House, to a big extent, this is a bipartisan consensus. The Inflation Reduction Act was strictly Democrat, but the CHIPS Act was broadly bipartisan. And the important point in highlighting there is that this is not something that just started with Biden coming into the White House. You can really trace it back to the global financial crisis in America, beginning to fall out of love with the globalization order that prevailed. That, of course, was dramatically accelerated under Donald Trump, who railed against America's big trade deficit with China and began to levy tariffs of course, not just on China, but on other countries around the world. That kind of was a first big step back away from the globalization free trade order that had prevailed for decades. And the second big blow, you can argue, came under Biden with the rollout of this different legislation, which is really building up this architecture of domestic subsidies to try to ensure that American industry will do well. But I think the big picture is the step back from the globalization that America really had created and helped to foster since the Second World War. So with that model of U.S.-led globalization
1: left behind by the U.S., I guess two main questions. How does the U.S. engage on commercial and trade policy with other countries now? And how have other countries responded to the change of approach coming out of D.C.?
4: So, there's a real tension in the way that America is approaching the rest of the world. To the extent that the motivation is dealing with the threat posed by a rising China, the security threat, and maybe more broadly the economic threat as well, America has been trying to reach out to sort of like minded allies in Europe and in Asia and saying, you know, it's in our collective interest to try to link our supply chains together to ensure that we are all less reliant on China for supplying critical inputs for high-tech sectors. On the other hand, to the extent that America is motivated by trying to reindustrialize, by trying to invest to develop its own answer to climate change, that involves going it alone to a certain extent. So there's this fundamental tension in terms of what they're doing. With the legislation that was passed over the past year, especially the big investments in climate, as well as the big investments in the semiconductor sector, there was this hope in America that other countries would basically see America's motivation. They themselves would do similar investments and somehow it could all be coordinated. I think, unfortunately, it's very difficult to coordinate these kinds of subsidies. And there is a zero-sum element that, you know, to the extent that, say, the American solar power sector does well, that will be at the expense of companies and sectors in Asia and in Europe. Same thing with electric vehicles. So it's been a very, very delicate balance. And how is the US trying to find that balance? America has moved away from pure trade negotiations. Instead, it's trying to advance kind of new style agreements for reaching out to allies. So with Asia, for example, there's something called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. But the response of a lot of American allies is we might understand what you're doing, but what you're actually putting onto the table is not terribly appealing. For example, that Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the IPEF, the IPEF, America is not offering any kind of market access. Typically in trade negotiations, there's a quid pro quo. The big thing that America has to offer is access to its market, the world's biggest market. That's just not on the table. So, They talk about, America talks about the idea that you might be able to get more investment from American companies. But as far as American allies are concerned, they don't quite see enough being put on offer just yet.
1: Yeah, I suppose to a lot of Asian policymakers, the idea of having something as sort of broad as the Trans-Pacific Partnership on the table, not all that many years ago, and then having something as thin as the Indo-Pacific economic framework on the table now is a bit disappointing. How are other countries responding to this?
4: I mean, I think it's fair to divide it into two different camps. So one camp is America's friends and allies, the ones that America is reaching out to with proposals like the IPAF. And they don't like what they're seeing, but they still want to kind of stay in America's good books. They want to try to kind of Bring America back to the path of more open trade. So they're working with it. They're trying to take a not terribly good offer and make it better, and hopefully persuade America to soften some of the kind of rough edges of its subsidies to make it more open for their companies. The other camp is really China, and, and you know this is the country that's being targeted by America. And there's not much chance of uh, compromise or conciliation between the two. So rather than working with America, you actually see China trying to challenge it, trying to use the existing architecture of globalization to see if it can somehow change what America is doing. So, you know, in December, just before the new year, China brought a dispute to the WTO about America's semiconductor policies, specifically the range of export controls that America is using to try to deny China access to the most advanced components in the semiconductor sector. And they're hoping that somehow through this case, they may be able to rally other countries and they may be able to reverse some of what America is doing. It really does seem like a bit of a Hail Mary. There's limited reason to think that the WTO will actually be able to modify America's behavior. But clearly, China realizes there's not much hope for conciliation otherwise. To get a sense of how policymakers are thinking about America's
1: slightly more precarious position here, I wanted to speak to Chad Bown from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Shall we hear from him now?
4: Let's do that.
1: Chad, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Chad, you are surely in the top percentile of the top percentile of people watching US trade policy. How do you think the Biden administration is thinking about which industries it wants to throw its arms around? Obviously, chips and electric vehicles are what we're looking at at the moment, but do you think it marks a
0: broader shift in thinking? For the u.s administration and i don't think it's just the biden administration i think this is a bipartisan position now in washington is that everything is seen through the lens of china so whether you're talking about semiconductors or whether you're talking about electric vehicles a huge story there is concern over dependence on china and having supply chains run through china and with Increasing concerns, not just over its non-market economy and its different economic system that we have you know, just come to recognize that the existing rules of the trading world can't really handle, but now we're in a new geopolitical climate where we are really worried about economic coercion and acts of military aggression feeding into trading relationships as well. And so the pieces of domestic legislation on the U.S. side, semiconductors trying to both bring back some manufacturing here into the United States, more diversification out of East Asia, and also electric vehicle subsidies, right? We all know that the battery components, the supply chains, the critical minerals for electric vehicles, the transportation system of the future, mostly currently all run through China. And so the concern is that's a dependence, and the United States is trying actively to try to reduce that dependence. But the way you have to do it is through really discriminatory policies industrial policies, so things like subsidies and then tariffs the big question i think for the united states is whether it is going to go at it alone on these things and try to reshore these kinds of economic activities these sectors or whether it's going to be successful at bringing economic allies potential military allies as well on board so not to have a reshoring exercise but the friend shoring kind of thing that various administration officials have talked about. If you're trying to do that, that's much harder because then you have to get Europe, Canada, Japan to actually work with you on these sorts of policies and do similar kinds of policies. um, And they may be more hesitant to do so. That's a really interesting
1: element of all of this. And, you know, we've spoken to people and you have everyone from sort of American allies and sort of neutral countries in Southeast Asia and East Asia and Europe. And they've become reliant over the years on this, what they thought was an understandable trading relationship between the US and China. They've all carved out their own part of that world that they believe that we all lived in. And now some of them at least feel that they're being left on the side. Is the US doing anything or could it do more maybe to ameliorate those concerns on the part of their sort of allies, friends, or even just countries that don't have a dog in this fight internationally?
0: Well, what's interesting is, of course, when the U.S. and China did the trade war with respect to each other, that actually created huge benefits for all of these third countries, whether you're talking about Japan, South Korea, countries in East Asia or Europe. The U.S. vacates the Chinese market. China is forced to vacate the U.S. market now there's opportunities for the rest of the world to sell more into each of those markets, and so it's not just that they were sort of neutral bystanders and something going on. they actually sort of benefited from the trade war and the trade tensions. But now I think they're being forced to confront a little bit of the uncomfortable nature of it's not just all about economics anymore. there is a lot more of geopolitical tension, but I want to caution us here it's not only that right a lot of I think what's happened. As we've seen through the pandemic, but also a renewed emphasis on climate and all of the severe weather examples, you know, whether we're talking about severe storms, floods, droughts, that has put into question the idea of the geographic concentration of certain types of economic activity in certain geographic locations, whether it's high-end semiconductors in South Korea and Taiwan, or PPE or electric vehicle batteries or what have you in China. I think it's now irresponsible for policymakers to say we can just have economic efficiency and not worry about that sort of geographic concentration anymore. We need to have more resilient supply chains. We need to have more diversified supply chains. And just one final question, Chad, as someone who's been watching this professionally
1: for a while, do you hold out much hope for the U.S. taking on leadership in global trade That it previously had, I would say, I presume before the Trump administration, the sort of distaste for multilateral and global agreements that the country's developed now. Do you see any prospect of
0: us sort of returning to the way things were? No. There's basically two reasons for that. One is obviously the domestic politics in the United States are just not there for the United States to really go at it alone in a positive way on trade. There is this lurking in the background, even if the Biden administration wanted to, lurking in the background of President Trump, potential run in 2024, and we know how strongly and how effectively he is at campaigning against trade. But the second thing is just, the world has become fundamentally different from the way it was when the United States used to lead on trade. Now we have global supply chains. We're so much more interdependent. The United States has incredibly less leverage to convince countries out there in the world to do much, right? This has to be a collective effort on behalf of the world on these things. I'm not sure Washington has realized that yet, too, that it does have a lot less leverage and that if it wants to actually make progress on trade, it has to figure out ways to engage allies and convince them to come on board. We'll see. I think this is the big task ahead of us, even for those of us that are very much in favor of rules and cooperation and U.S. engagement in international trade, how Washington can do so effectively is really, really the big open question at the moment.
1: Yeah, I guess that's the question we're all asking. Chad, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Alice, what I find really interesting here is how quickly the political tide has sort of turned against globalization and in favor of more protection. Obviously, we're talking about maybe seven years or so, so it might not sound that quick, but you've gone to a position where you have considerable bipartisan consensus on these issues in the US. And that does make it feel a bit more like a permanent shift.
2: Yeah, I agree. It feels as though various elements of this push away from globalization towards protectionism have been building over the past seven or eight years. But The past couple really do feel like they've sort of cemented that viewpoint in place. And one of the things I sort of found most interesting in our coverage of this in the briefing that was in last week's paper is just how inefficient it is when you add it all up. So if you tot up the cost of duplicating all of these supply chains, partly to rely less on less than sort of friendly allies, partly to sort of push the green transition the cost of it adds up to something like 3 to 5% of GDP, which is just an enormous, enormous amount of money and hugely inefficient.
1: And on the subject of enormous amounts of money, if you do happen to pick up the physical copy of The Economist this week, you can read a little bit about the Bank of Japan and the enormous amounts of money that the Bank of Japan is now being forced to spend. Huge, huge asset purchases at the moment in defence of its yield curve control policy. What have you been looking forward to in this week's edition, Alice?
2: In addition to your, I'm sure, excellent piece on Japan, I'm really looking forward to reading our coverage of Disney, which turns 100 years old on the 27th of January. And it's obviously a really fascinating time for Disney. You had that sort of Game of Thrones-style leadership change in November. It launched this big streaming business, which isn't going particularly well. And I am really looking forward to reading my colleague Tom Wainwright's perspective on that.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that as well. Another piece that springs to mind that's coming up is our coverage of Chinese demographics. So we've had the first official decline in the Chinese population reported just recently. There's going to be some great content in the print edition about that and analysis of what it all means. If you want to read those pieces and more, listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
2: That link is in the notes for this episode.
4: Ready to pop the question?
1: Before the break, we heard why US lawmakers were shunning a decades-long preference for openness in trade to protect their electric car and semiconductor industries at home. But now I want to explore how those policies are being viewed from the other side of the Pacific. To do that, I spoke to Henry Gao, a law professor at Singapore Management University and an expert in international trade issues.
3: Henry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's my pleasure to talk to you again. So the US has made
1: some fairly large steps recently towards high-tech protectionism, particularly in the areas of semiconductor production and electric vehicles. What do you make of these changes? And did the change mostly come with the Biden administration? Or are these really things that preceded the current US government?
3: Mike, you are absolutely right to summarize this as kind of a policy shift from the U.S. side. I once called this as the U.S. trying to out-China, China by becoming more like China. And this policy shift, I would argue, doesn't really start with current Biden administration. It is a continuation from the highly protectionist policies from the Trump administration. And when Biden came into office, despite all this talk about U.S. returning to the international scene, the U.S. embracing multilateralism. If you look at the essence of the U.S. trade policy and also its economic policy, you could argue that actually biden essentially inherited the whole package of the trump administration's trade and economic policy the only difference is that they are now doing it more politely and also by trying to involve more allies rather than just doing it alone as in the trump era
1: you quite rightly put it that great line of trying to out china china obviously a large part of this is directed against china but it has sort of upset some US allies or made them nervous at the very least. What do you make of the reception that these changes have had in Asia more
3: widely? Well, I would say that most Asian countries are uneasy about this because both the US and China are very important trade partners to them. And for some countries, the US is also a very important strategic and military and security partner So a lot of Asian countries feel that they are forced to choose between U.S. and China. But now I think one thing is very clear that fewer and fewer countries will now have the luxury of being able to work or to trade with both countries. Because if you look at the way things are going in the U.S. and also to a lesser extent in the EU, basically the line is, to put it, like a former U.S. President Bush has once said, if you are not with us, you are against us. Yeah, we've heard that sort of thing from policymakers
1: around Asia. The concern about not being involved in these sort of things that they would have appreciated being brought in a little bit more to the discussion. And you know, they have their own interests as well. Japan would like to encourage more advanced semiconductor manufacturing. The Korean government has a very considerable focus on international trade. It's a major exporter. It's got a lot of big export-oriented companies. They might have appreciated being brought in a bit more. Is the impression that you get that it makes these Asian allies feel like
3: they haven't been consulted, that they're sort of playing catch up with the rest of us? Yeah, that's definitely the feeling that I also get. I think the problem is that the U.S., uh, when it introduced all these major policies, like the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, like all these semiconductor support package. It really did this largely on its own without much consultation, not just with its Asian partners and allies, but even with the EU. So that is really a bit worrisome for many countries in the region. On the other hand, you could see that some of the recent U.S. policy moves, such as the new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Initiative, the so-called IPF is a kind of a way for the US to try to involve these countries and that also explains the warm response the U.S. got from the countries in the region because they realize that the IPEF is going to be the main instrument that the U.S. is using. And if they do not jump on board at this time, they might miss the boat completely. So that is why you see virtually everyone from this region, Southeast Asia in particular, has jumped on the ship. But how much will there be in the IPEF? That is an open question. And
1: if we take this just to China, and I saw you tweeting about this, which is that we've now made this ironic full circle, which is that the first U.S. World Trade Organization case against China was relating to China's treatment of semiconductors. And now China is filing cases against the U.S., at the WTO for its own treatment of semiconductors. I mean, that struck me as this sort of symbol of the US abdicating its international role as a sort of leader of rulemaking in global trade. Do you think that role is completely gone? Do you ever see any prospect of the
3: US sort of picking up the role that it used to have when it comes to global trade? I think it's very interesting that you brought up the comparison of these two cases. I really think this is a vicious circle. If this continues at the end of the day, nobody will be a winner. The US will lose out, China will lose out, and everybody else, be it Australia, Japan, Europe, they will all lose out. And we would have what economists would call the Pareto efficiency of everyone would be all negative. Nobody would be reaping any benefit from all this downward spiral. vicious circle. So I really hope that the U.S. can rethink its policy in its competition against China. I mean, I understand that given China's political and military intentions, the U.S. might want to introduce some policies to protect its own market, to compete against China. But maybe there's another way of thinking about the issue, you know, instead of just uh, Trying to shut everyone out. Maybe we could have a a, a kind of alternative system, which is like uh, what we had in the original GATT, the predecessor to the WTO, you know. The GATT actually existed for like 50 years. We saw the involvement of the second largest economy in the world. That is the Soviet Union, but that did not prevent the GET from becoming this engine which kind of propelled the rest of the world into uh, economic prosperity. I hope the U.S. can try to do that instead of just uh, trying to work with everyone on a bilateral basis, maybe have more like a multilateral minus one approach. And this one would be China. You know, in other words, if you don't want to work with China, you should not hesitate to work with everyone else. I really hope that could be a new way of thinking for the U.S. policymakers.
1: Henry Gao, thank you very much for making the time to join us. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. I am back with The Economist's U.S. economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. Now, Simon, thank you very much for sticking around. You're welcome. So, from everything we've heard, it sounds like what we're seeing is sort of potentially a permanent or very long lasting shift in the US approach to trade and for that reason to the global approach to trade. What do you make of it?
4: So, I think you're right that it is a very long lasting shift. I guess what's still unknown is exactly what are the contents of this shift, right? So, we know that there's a lot more skepticism. And dislike for the prevailing globalization order. And so there's been a move away from that. But what exactly is it a move towards? We still don't fully know in the sense that, yes, there is this big architecture of subsidies that's been built up. But are these going to be closed subsidies that have very strong local content rules that really do discriminate against other countries? Or is America going to progressively open them to ensure that like-minded countries, its allies, its closest trading partners and friends will be able to access them. So will there be a lot of it's a it's a, an awful word, but I'll use it anyways. will there be a big movement towards friend shoring uh, and a shift of supply chains away from China? or is this going to turn into a kind of a really grubby zero-sum world where other allies just kind of begin to peel away from America because America says nice and sweet things but ultimately is just kind of looking out for its own interest? You don't sound particularly optimistic. I think there's, based on the flow of policy and regulation, I think there's reason to be somewhat optimistic. We already saw that before the new year, America began to modify some of the harshest elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, so making some of the EV subsidies more accessible to companies around the world. So you can kind of see that movement, almost a bit of an embarrassment in Washington about the degree to which the original subsidies cooked up by Congress were going to be very discriminatory. So I guess that gives us a, a certain degree of optimism. I think where it's fair to be quite pessimistic, if you believed or wanted to see the prevailing trade order where China and America were integrated and trading and despite political differences, you know, goods and capital were still flowing more or less freely across borders. I think in that regard, that shift does seem quite permanent. America and China are already in the first innings of economic confrontation, and that only seems like it's going to get deeper as time goes on. America is quite determined that China will not be able to get to the cutting edge of key manufacturing sectors, of key high-tech sectors, and China, for its part, is very, very determined to get there, and I think there's no simple way to square that circle.
1: So there's a lot of uncertainty about the way that this all plays out. I think it's really interesting to frame it in the sort of the potential options that you just have there. Is there anything that we can say with a bit more certainty about what the future of trade looks like under this sort of model, this way of thinking about things?
4: Well, I think one thing that we can say certainly is that it is going to make for a less efficient World. And, you know, less efficient, that doesn't sound necessarily all that scary. But I think what that means for consumers and for companies around the world is that, you know, we really did get used to this incredibly convenient and smoothly connected world where you could buy a flight ticket one day and 3 days later be traversing the entire world you could place an order on an e-commerce platform one day and a week later something that was made in another country would arrive at your doorstep and that that's just from the consumer perspective from the company's perspective you have these incredibly complex interlinked supply chains the the kind of just in time mode for delivery where all of these different nodes from around the world were perfectly well connected and what that meant was that we had decades of incredible advancement in technology of a lot of basic goods improving in quality but getting cheaper and cheaper and we're moving away from that we're moving to a world where companies perhaps rightly want to have more redundancy built into their supply chains where countries, perhaps rightly, want to be less reliant on potential adversaries. But it's going to cost a lot of money to build up these duplicate supply chains. And I think it means that we're moving to a world where goods may not flow so freely, where things will be a little bit more expensive. And you know, in the name of resiliency and security, maybe that's the right direction to move in. But it is going to be costly. It is going to impose damages on economies around the world. Simon, that's
1: a concerning note to end on. But thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. So Alice, what do you make of what you've heard today? How do you feel about living in a less open, more protectionist world?
2: Yeah, I mean, not great is the short answer. I guess the thing that I find most interesting about this topic is economics is always about trade-offs. And in isolation, each of the sort of policy shifts that we're talking about sound like they have quite a lot of merit. And so it obviously wasn't a great idea for Europe to be so reliant on Russia for gas. And so a pullback from that kind of reliance on you know countries that you feel like you aren't in sort of perfect alliance with in isolation makes complete sense. At the same time, I totally understand the impulse to subsidize the transition to green and sort of new technologies. I completely understand why there is this push to do that and why countries want at least a little bit of that going on in their sort of home turf. The problem is, as we've illustrated, you know, when you add up all of these trade-offs in total, the cost really can be enormous. And so, The sort of right way to do this is to sort of think about the balance between all of those priorities and how to sort of get that balance right. And it is a really complicated problem and there isn't a sort of easy solution. I did like the conclusion that we came to in our leader on this last week, which was that you can do all these things. But if you're still dedicated to openness in some ways, the way to go about that is to push more aggressively on openness and interconnectedness with countries that you do feel comfortable being reliant on. So we advocated for America sort of joining what remains of the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership again. Politically, that seems sort of totally infeasible, which I guess is sort of a depressing place to end up. Mike, what was your takeaway?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one because I guess it's as close to a sort of religious issue as you get at The Economist. I actually remember the first time I started reading The Economist, I was 16 because I was really cool when I was that sort of age. And it was doing British history A-level and reading about the Corn Laws and Cobden and Bright and all of that. And it really took me into this. So it's weird to sort of come completely full circle. But I, I had a quote, actually, which I thought I'd read, which is about... Someone's perception of the globalized world before 1914, before the First World War, and I always find it particularly striking to think back to the previous episode of globalization. The quote is, The inhabitant of London could order by telephone, sipping his morning tea in bed, the various products of the whole earth in such quantity as he might see fit and reasonably expect their early delivery upon his doorstep. He could at the same moment and by the same means adventure his wealth in the natural resources and new enterprises of any quarter of the world and share without exertion or even trouble in their prospective fruits and advantages. I always found that passage incredibly striking. And the reason that I thought it was particularly fun was because we temporarily lost one Keynes, but that is from another Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, another free trader. And I always find these things come in circles, and I think there's Someone listening to that Keynes quote now can sort of feel the same thing, that something's been lost, a more open world, that it's very difficult to get back once it's gone.
2: Yes, that is a really lovely passage. And in case it wasn't clear, Sumeya, we do miss you very much. With that, shall we pivot to our stats? Do you want to go first?
1: Yes, I'll jump in. So my number is 10,000, which is reportedly the number of layoffs that Microsoft uh, is currently going through after its results. This week, slightly unfortunate element of that reported by the Wall Street Journal was that Microsoft hosted a performance by Sting in Davos for some executives the night before that announcement. Slightly unfortunate combination of events to come at the same time.
2: Yes, there seems to be a sort of recurring theme of layoffs going on in tech and finance companies. There was a lot of chatter about whether Goldman Sachs was going to have to give up its private jet as it sacked a load of its sort of junior staff on January 11th. My set of the week this week is $22.2 billion, which is the size of a secondaries fund that Blackstone raised. So this is sort of a new kind of private equity vehicle. And essentially, a secondaries fund allows pension funds, endowments, whoever invested in their funds originally to cash out of those stakes. And I thought it was a really interesting time for that fund to have been raised because you have this whole debate about whether private equity has sort of appropriately marked down all of its assets and everything to reflect the sort of routing in asset prices in 2022. And they've now raised an enormous amount of money for people to help their investors get out of those funds if that's what they want. So fascinating time for them to have raised such an enormous amount of money to do that.
1: But surely all those pension funds and investors don't want to sell because their PE investments are doing so well, as you can tell from their valuations. They must be doing incredibly well. I don't know why you want to sell at this point. Anyway, and with that, all that is left to do is thank Chad Bowne and Henry Gow.
2: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And you can always write to us at podcasts at
2: Today's show was produced by Dan Asher.
1: Our sound engineer is Weidong Lin.
2: And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell.
1: I'm Mike Bird.
2: I'm Alice Fullwood.
1: And this is The Economist.